you, and uh, I wonder if you'll just bow your heads with me for a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to, to come before you. Lord, to quiet our hearts before you, to, to sing praise to you. Father, I ask that this morning that um, the work you do in our hearts would transform us. That as we lift our voices as one, that as we come before you in prayer as one, and that as we open your word as one, Lord, that you would be a heavenly father who desires to offer good things to your children. And those good things look like transforming us from the inside out. And so we thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever had the chance to meet someone really cool in life. I, I know for uh, myself, uh, I used to love when my wife Tara would come home from work when we were up in Boston, up in the Boston area. She would come home from working in Boston. I don't know if you knew this, but a while back, the state of Massachusetts provided some, some tax relief to companies that wanted to come into Massachusetts and film some, some cool movies. And, uh, and so <clears throat> working in Boston, she had the opportunity to find out about some of these films being filmed in the city of Boston. So she would tell me these stories about how her and one of her colleagues, her friends, would take off on their lunch hour, and they would go about stalking these superstars. They would go about finding out, oh, they're down by the library, or they're over here. And she would come back with all these really cool stories of people that she could see a little bit from the distance, of course. But, but it was, it was kind of cool to think that, uh, that, that you, know, you came close to knowing someone who's famous, someone who, who's known by you know, a lot of people in the world. Have you ever had a chance to meet someone really cool like that? Have you ever had the chance to, to spend time with maybe someone like a, a famous athlete or, or, or an actor or actress? Or, or maybe it's a, a scholar, someone who's written a book or teaches something that you really love to, to, to follow, and, and so you had a chance to go hear them speak, and, and it was just a cool experience. Now, I had a chance, some friends of ours, actually the, the Colgates last year, they invited me and my son Alex to join them up in, in I think it was Middletown, uh, or up in Wallingford, actually, at a go-kart track, because one, one of my favorite superstars, uh, NASCAR driver Joey Logano, was, was holding an event, a go-karting event, and, and, and Daniel Colgate got the opportunity to race against him with his team. And, uh, and so last year, they invited us to, to join them, and so you could imagine, you know, Alex was very excited me even more so, and uh, um, so we, we, we get up there, and <clears throat> Joey Logano, this, this young, he's 25 years old, he's a race car driver, he's very successful, 25 years old, I, I hadn't done nearly that much by the time I was 25, yet he's sitting there at a table, and he's, he's signing photos of himself, autographs, and, and people are having the opportunity to take a picture with him, so I'm just thrilled with this, I mean, again, I'm sure Alex was thrilled as well, but I'm, I'm like super thrilled, I'm excited, I get to have my picture taken with him, so I'm waiting in line, and we're waiting, and it's, it's, you know, the line's moving quickly, but there's a lot of people there, and, and, uh, and the, the, as the line goes by, before we know it, it's our turn, and, and I, I realize, like, I'm standing in the presence of this guy that I look up to, that I think is the coolest, you know, coolest thing, uh, in fact, his nickname is Sliced Bread, because he's the coolest driver, you know, since Sliced Bread or whatever, but that's another story for another time. Anyway, so I get to the front of the line, and I drew a blank. I, I, I get next to him, and I, I'm like, oh, what am I going to say to him? I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I think it was something along the lines of, you're doing really good this year. You know, and it's in that moment, you're like, oh, I wish I could take that back. But you know what? I, I lost my confidence in the moment. I, I lost my confidence in the presence of a, of a, a superstar in the, the race car driving world. And you know what? So I wonder if you've had an experience like that, where, where you've got to stand in the presence, you've had the opportunity to stand in the presence of someone you look up to. Maybe it's a, an athlete, maybe it's an author or, or someone else, but 
You ever had the chance to stay in the presence of someone that you revere in this world? Or, or, or what about this? Have you ever imagined what it would be like to stand in God's presence? Have you ever wondered, like, picture yourself. I mean, I, I'm not looking to, to say this is what the Bible teaches or anything like that, but, but picture yourself. If, if you were standing before God, what would the scene look like? Would you be able to look him face to face? Maybe you'd have a hard time making eye contact. You know, I do sometimes. I have a hard time making eye contact in conversations. What would God be saying to you? What, what, what might he be thinking, or, or, or how might that scene look? Are you kneeling before God? Are, are, you, are you kind of giving him a hug? Is there a warm embrace? See, in our, our passage we're going to take a look at today, the author of Hebrews reminds his listeners that because of, of Jesus' sacrifice, because of the blood he shed on the cross, we can have confidence to draw near to God's presence. We can have confidence to come before him. The author reminds us that we have reason to stand with confidence in the presence of God. You and I, we can have confidence to come before the Lord this morning. If, uh, if you've been joining us over the last few weeks, we've been really looking at ways that God has allowed his people to relate to him. In the Old Testament, God allowed for his people, uh, the nation of Israel, to draw near to his presence through, through laws and animal sacrifices, ways that they can atone for the sins in their life so that they could come before a holy God. <clears throat> but ultimately, what, what Pastor Dave was able to, to show to us, these, these animal sacrifices, these, these laws that they were to follow, they were really just a foreshadowing of what would be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, people could actually have a personal relationship with God. That's pretty cool. This is great news for the original recipients of the book of Hebrews. You know, we, Pastor Dave <clears throat> taught us that, that they were actually kind of being bombarded with these ideas that, that, that kind of created this doubt, this question in their heart as to whether or not they can actually have a relationship with God. So this news, as you can imagine, was great news for them. And you know what? It's great news for us as well this morning. They, 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 if you remember, this, this letter was written to a group of Christians who, they were persecuted. It wasn't just creating doubt in their mind and their heart about whether or not they could draw near to God. They were, they were being persecuted. And they needed to be reminded that, that the Jewish laws that they had once observed in the past truly didn't provide the freedom and forgiveness that their hearts desired. They needed to be reminded that only by the grace of God through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, could they be forgiven and have a relationship with him? This is what, what Pastor Dave was pointing out to us just a couple of weeks ago when we read in, in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The, 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 the sacrifice of Jesus did far more than, than cleanse our flesh to, to kind of temporarily atone for our sins. It took care of something much deeper within us. See, God cares deeply about the condition of our heart and soul. He cares deeply about our con the condition of our heart and soul before him. The Old Testament sacrificial system cleansed us from the outside. 
It, it cleansed the outside of people's lives. But, but you know what? God wanted more for his people. God desires more for you and I. God wants to purify our lives from the very center of who we are, the very center of our being, and, and, and not just clean the outside of our lives. You know, it doesn't really matter how, things, how great things are looking on the outside, but we're masters of making ourselves look good from the outside. Your lawn may be the best-looking lawn in the neighborhood, but if the inside of your house is a mess, your home is still a mess. It doesn't matter how great our, our families or our marriages look uh, on the outside come Sunday morning. The true measure of health of our marriages and our families is measured at home, behind closed doors. And ultimately, it doesn't matter how many Bible verses we have memorized or how many Bible stories we we're familiar with. It doesn't matter if they haven't transformed us from the inside out. To use the words of God to one of his messengers, Samuel, he says this in 1 Samuel 16. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, but because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, that was a scene where, where God was guiding Samuel <clears throat> to anoint the next king of Israel. And Samuel had looked down the line of David's brothers, and they were strong, they were big, they looked great from the outside. They looked like real leaders. But God said, I'm not looking on the outside appearance. I want to look and see what matters most, the condition of your heart. See, I think we're tempted to believe that our status and our outward appearance influence God's view of us. I think we're, we're tempted to believe that that status and outward appearance is what God wants to see, and yet God looks at the interior of our hearts. Now, this is both the most freeing and convicting thought that I can face. It's convicting because in the sense that I can't truly hide from, or I can't truly hide from God who I really am. I may be able to fool people around me from time to time, but I can't fool God. And he, he sees the ugliness that's deep within inside me. But you know, it's also freeing. It, it's, it's freeing in the sense that I don't have to keep struggling to make myself look better than I currently am. And yet he still loves me. God cares deeply about the condition of our hearts, and the good news is he doesn't leave it up to man. He doesn't leave it up to me to cleanse myself, to purify myself, and to transform myself. Only through Jesus are we invited to, into God's presence and completely new and washed clean of the guilt and shame we carry in the interior of our hearts. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says again in chapter 10. At <clears throat> the very beginning of our passage, beginning in verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. See, the holy places that are spoken of here refer to the place in the tabernacle in the temple called the Holy of Holies. It was that place where only the, the high priest was allowed to enter behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, and only one day a year. It, it was the day known as Yom Kippur. It was the, the Day of Atonement. And, 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 and the fact of the matter is, this, this day is, is still celebrated today. It's, it's the place where God's presence dwells. If you were to look at Hebrews chapter 9, if just flip a page back, starting in verse 6, we read this. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, 
performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Pastor Dave talked about how only by the shedding of blood can forgiveness be given. That, that, that God would offer forgiveness of sins through the shedding of blood. And this is where the priest, the high priest, would actually sprinkle that blood and it would atone for the sins of Israel. The problem is he would have to go back year after year. And so if nothing has changed, if Jesus had not lived and died and offered his life as a sacrifice for us, we would still have to go to the temple and offer sacrifice year by year for the atonement of our sins. But you know what? Here's the thing. Jesus did come. Jesus did live and die. He shed his blood on the cross as a perfect payment for my guilt, for your guilt, for our guilt. And also for our shame. And because he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and a great high priest, he was able to do something that no earthly priest could do. He's able to take away our guilt and our shame and clothe us in forgiveness and righteousness. Look at what, he's, what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10. Flip back again to a couple pages forward or a page forward. He says in verse 10 of chapter 10, And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away our sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who have been sanctified. Do you hear that? Jesus' death and resurrection offer us a perfect righteousness. They perfect us. A perfect standing before God. We're, we're no longer forced to stand outside of God's presence and let someone else go in and advocate for us. We're invited into God's presence with Jesus, having been made perfect by his sacrifice and, and, and his payment. This is our confidence that the author of Hebrews talks about. It's not a feeling or an emotion that comes and goes based on our circumstances. It's actually it's a state of being before God. It's an assurance, a guarantee that we can come into God's presence because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. You know, I, I think many of us struggle to believe and embrace that confidence. Many of us struggle to believe that there's nothing we need to do to overcome the debt that we've created with our lives. I, I get it. That's, a, that's actually a foreign concept. It's natural for us to think that, that we actually need to correct our own errors, that we, we need to fix what we have broken. And so it's, it's difficult to embrace that truth, that there is nothing we can do to receive God's righteousness, his righteousness through Jesus Christ, apart from accepting the gift that Jesus has given us, that he's offered us. And yet this is grace. This is God's unmerited favor toward us. God will look upon us and have a relationship with us, not because of our own efforts to fix what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Uh, Philip Yancey tells a, a modernized version of the prodigal son in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. You know, maybe you remember that story from Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son, about where a, a, a man sends 
one of his sons off with his inheritance because the son wants the inheritance and, and the, hun squan the son squanders that inheritance. You know, I, I would encourage you to read that story at some point found in Luke 15. And when you read that story, read the story with the understanding that the father is our heavenly father and that either two of the sons, the younger son or the older son, could be us. In fact, I'm sure that I've kind of foreseen, or I've, I've kind of seen myself in either of the sons' places at different times in my own life. But today, for today, I just want to, I want to share with you real quickly the story from Philip, Philip Yancey's book. I want to read for you the story that he tells, a modernized version of the prodigal son. He says this, a young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you. She screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she's mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to, to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provin provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now she has blonde hair with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears. Nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow sound, signs of illness appear and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When the winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl the night, at, at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night, as she lies awake listening for, for, for footsteps... All of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspapers she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City, when a million cherry tree blossoms at once, with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, 
she says to herself, and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus till it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or or so until she could talk to them? And even if they're home, they, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overlook and overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed warm by thousands of tires, and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road, and the bus swerves. Every so often, a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice if they're here. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs, bus terminal in in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great-aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome home! Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins to memorize speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. You see, what we need to understand, that young woman struggled to believe that her family would take her back. She struggled to believe that forgiveness was on the other side of her guilt and shame. And that her moment of total surrender and going home, she didn't find condemnation and judgment, but celebration and rejoicing. Her family had been looking for her all along. This is how our Heavenly Father approaches you and I. This is how your Heavenly Father sees you When we finally get to a place of courage and surrender to him, you're not going to find condemnation and judgment. 
See, the condemnation and judgment is found somewhere else. It was found about 2,000 years ago on the cross. Just like the young woman, what will you find? You're going to find in surrender, you're going to find celebration, rejoicing, and forgiveness. This, this is our confidence this morning. That we believe God's going to forgive us and embrace us with open arms as we come to him in repentance through the work of Christ on the cross. This is the confidence through which we draw near to God. A confidence given to us because we are forgiven. It's a done deal. It's completed. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Now, if any of you are wondering this morning how we might surrender to him, you know, I, I think it's clear. The Bible teaches us that if we believe in our hearts and confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. We will receive that forgiveness. Or, or how about what John says in 1 John chapter 1? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, I think there are, there are many of us here this morning who hunger for surrender. We're like that woman in the city saying, I want to go home. I want to know that God's going to embrace me with open arms. I want that confidence for myself. So I want to invite us to take a moment now. I want to pray just for a moment. For, for many of you, you feel like, you know what, I've, I've made that surrender. Dan, I've made that surrender. Well, you know what, this is an opportunity for us to fan the flames a reminder for our hearts of the commitment, the, the surrender we made before him, the confidence we have to draw near to God and in that moment find forgiveness and grace. So I want to take a moment to pray, and I would invite you as I pray to pray as you feel led in the quietness of your, of your own heart. If it's for you this morning to surrender for that first time, then, then praise God, pray along with me. If you want God to remind you of that confidence you have in him through Christ, then I encourage you to pray along with me. But let's take a moment to bow our heads before him together. Father God, I thank you that you are a heavenly father who stands on the porch of heaven looking for your children waiting for us to surrender, to return to you. Lord, this morning, I know that, that the reality is for all of our hearts, the struggle to embrace the fact, the confidence that we have through Jesus, that we will not face guilt and shame. We will face forgiveness, rejoicing, and celebration. Lord, I would invite the people here this morning who desire to surrender their hearts to Christ this morning to pray with me. Father, I, I am a sinner. I have squandered your, the inheritance you've given me. And yet, Lord, I believe that through Jesus Christ, through his life, his death, his resurrection, the payment that he fulfilled for me on the cross, I can be forgiven. Lord, give me that confidence this morning to know that God does not look down upon me with guilt uh, in condemnation and judgment, but with love 
grace and forgiveness because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. Thank you for the gift you've given me by grace through faith in Jesus. I claim that gift today. I claim that confidence. Begin a new thing in me today, Lord. And, and Father, for those I ask and pray who, who, who've made that surrender long ago, Father, we pray together now and we ask that you would fan, fan the flames of that confidence. Give us that blessed assurance that you are faithful to embrace us as we surrender our hearts and our lives to you. That that would be a daily confidence that we wake up with, trusting in you and all you would have for us through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.